0: You are listening to From the Trinity Pulpit, a podcast of Taproot Faith. This is Matt Joyner, and I am the host of Taproot Faith and the pastor of Trinity Reformed Episcopal Church in Mason, Ohio. If you're looking for a liturgical, biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-loving church and live in or are visiting the Cincinnati area, feel free to join us any Lord's Day. We would love to have you. And now, here's the sermon for this past Sunday. may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matthew chapter 21, our gospel that we read this morning. Before we do so, let's pray. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Our Father and our God, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds to the understanding of your gospel. Illumine our hearts that we may understand them rightly, that we may see the light which comes from your word. And that that light may lead us out of dark places. That as you have entered into the glorious city of Jerusalem. And triumph over your enemies. Of Satan's sin and death. That you would lead us in that way. Through humility just as you did. And we ask all of this in your blessed name. Amen. Amen. This morning as we are celebrating Palm Sunday. I'm in a bit of disbelief, because wasn't Ash Wednesday just last week? (laughs) How is it possible that it has flown by so much and so quickly? And I'm reminded that just last week we talked about from John chapter 8, we talked about that being the springboard really of the the Lord really kind of, for lack of a better way to say it at the moment, sort of being in the face of the Pharisees. And really that's springboarding him toward the events that we are going to commemorate and remember. And in a sense live out this coming week. And that week, that holy week, begins really in earnest with what we're commemorating this morning. One might say that it was kicked off really by his his raising Lazarus from the dead. And that really finally put the final crosshairs on him. But after that is all done, he begins to approach Jerusalem, beginning of verse twenty or chapter twenty-one. And he came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Bethany, where he raised Lazarus from the dead, is two miles away from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. And Bethphage is between the two. So if you can imagine having villages sort of pockmarking the countryside the great village of Bethany, two miles away, and then Bethphage, one mile away, in between the two. And they stop at Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This particular passage always made me chuckle to myself a little bit because imagine what would happen if I walked into a parking lot up to somebody's car and said, the Lord has need of it, and then took off. But that is what the Lord did. And obviously, the way he was able to do this is because whoever this person was knew exactly who it was that they were talking about when he said, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. That word can either mean Christ as the master, as the Lord, or the almighty God of the universe. Either way, it's true. And so he went, he sent his disciples to this man to take this colt and the foal, the donkey and the colt, and to bring them because God had need of them. Why did he need them both? We're told that he rode upon a donkey that no one had ever ridden before. This young animal had never been ridden, obviously young, and needed its mother so that it wouldn't bolt in terror of all the people. They walked together with Christ on the back. And the people gathered together, waving branches of palms. And so we see something really amazing. We see the people, the beasts, And the plants of the earth gathered together in a single act of worship. All of creation coming together to worship the Lord at his triumphal entry. Something that we will not see again until his coming again. But in any case... We t- he tells us why this happened. Matthew tells us why this took place. Christ was self-consciously fulfilling prophecy. Self-consciously. And this is actually a criticism that many people, many liberal theologians and scholars will level against it. They will say, look at that. He, he knew the prophecy, so he was just intentionally fulfilling it. See that? But they don't take into account that this sheer amount of hubris... And the sheer explosive nature of what would have taken place if any mere person took it upon themselves to try to intentionally fulfill prophecy. It simply wouldn't have happened. But this prophecy that he is fulfilling is a a putting together of two Old Testament prophecies. One from Isaiah chapter 62 and the other one from Zechariah 9 which we heard this morning. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Fulfilling prophecy as always. Why a donkey? Why a donkey? In the ancient world, and actually in the not so ancient world, when a conqueror came into the city that he was conquering or was coming home, from having conquered someplace else, the, the general or the king would ride into the city, mounted upon his steed, mounted upon a great horse with all of those he conquered in tow behind him as trophies of war. But Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. Have you ever seen donkeys in the Middle East? They're not the big things we have here. They're short. In fact, for an adult male to ride them, you have to ride with your knees bent. You can still see that today if you go to that part of the world. It is an incredibly humbling thing to have to ride one of these things. And Christ, the king of the universe, comes riding on a humble animal with his knees bent with the coats of his disciples as a saddle. With no slaves following behind him in his wake that he has conquered. Simply coming in in humility. And that is the point. Christ does not conquer initially by violence. He does not conquer by destruction. He conquers through humility. And he comes into the city With a mass of people. He comes in as people are coming in the pilgrim route for Passover. How many people are we talking about here? Josephus tells us that just a couple of decades later, in the 60s, that at a single Passover, there would have been 2.7 million Jews in Jerusalem. That's just the Jews that doesn't mean that doesn't count those who were proselytes coming in that doesn't mean that doesn't count the romans who were there occupying that doesn't count people that were there for various other reasons 2.7 million people in the in the old city of jerusalem which as it looks at a modern city is not that big it's not that big all of those people And what that also tells us is it should make us think a lot of times on Palm Sunday sermons, you'll hear people say the same people that greeted Jesus were the same people screaming for his death. I don't see that anywhere in the scripture. I don't see any evidence that was the same people. I don't see any evidence that these were the same people. I think that the people that greeted Christ greeted him in sincerity. And the people that condemned him a few days later did so in sincerity that they weren't the same people. It's not hard to believe. The same people, if you go to a major city, any major city, even here. The same people that you might see at the opera house are not going to be the same people that you see at Paul Brown Stadium. Necessarily. There might be some overlap. But generally speaking, not necessarily. But in any case, Christ is met with his followers who are tearing down palms and laying their clothes in the street. What's with the palms, anyway? You're sitting there holding them, I assume. I'm sure my children are hitting each other with them. What's with the palms? Palms, in the old Jewish tradition, were signs of victory. Victory. It comes from the Maccabean revolt in between the Testaments, the intertestamental period. Judas Maccabeus led a revolt and overthrew the Syrians that had overrun Israel. And when he did so, the parade into Jerusalem to worship, the people tore down palms and waved them in the air and instituted a new feast. The Feast of Dedication, also known as the Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah, which we still see today. But in that way, palms became a symbol of victory for the people. And they would go and they would rip them off the the trees, because they were in abundance. And they would wave them back and forth, chanting, Hosanna, to the son of David is what they, chanted, which, what they sang to Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We hear this word all the time. It's a churchy word that gets thrown around like hallelujah. Hosanna. I remember hearing a funny story. That uh, there was a pastor who had two dogs. And he named them Hosanna and Hallelujah and when the dogs got out he would wander through the neighborhood singing saying hosanna hallelujah and the neighborhood the neighborhood people all thought they were pentecostal <laughs> but hosanna means something and it means something really important that we should all keep in our minds and have on our tongues always it means save us now Save us now. It doesn't mean save us generally. It doesn't mean save me as an individual. It doesn't mean save us at some point. It means save us now. Save us now. And this comes, this isn't just come out of nowhere. The people didn't spontaneously start singing this. This is from the Hillel, the Psalms that people would sing as they went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And those are Psalms 113 to 118. And in Psalm 118, beginning in verse 19, it says, Open the gates of righteousness for me, and I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. I will give thanks to you because you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, save us now. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God. I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Just in that one section of Psalms, how many single verses have become so commonplace that we hear them all the time? How many of those things? I mean, for heaven's sakes, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I've seen that as a bumper sticker. But to the Jews of Jesus' day, This had a very, very specific meaning. It was a messianic expectation. And the fact that the people began singing Hosanna to the son of David, Lord, save us now, son of David, told you exactly what they thought was happening. And rightly so. The Lord, the king, the son of David, the heir of David, is entering Jerusalem. Blessed is he. Hosanna in the highest heaven. God save us now from the highest heaven. Your salvation comes from the highest heaven. And here he is in front of us. Here riding on a donkey is the one who connects heaven and earth. And we lay our clothes on the ground before him. We wave our hands and palms and sing a hymn of victory to him. To this, his humble coronation as king. He enters Jerusalem. But he does not enter Jerusalem to reign as David did. He enters Jerusalem to die. His disciples knew it. He had told them many times. Whether or not they had grasped it by this point, we don't know. Probably not. The disciples, like us, because we're all human, were pretty thick. As are we. But Christ went to Jerusalem as the reigning, ruling king to offer himself up. To offer himself as a sacrifice for many. That from the humility of that donkey would come the humility and humiliation of the cross. That the people sing Hosanna in the highest heaven would then see him upon that cross. And as St. Ambrose says, that that cross is the altar upon which the perfect lamb is sacrificed. The cross itself is the altar upon which the perfect lamb is sacrificed for the sins of the world. The humility and the humiliation of the Lord seen here on Palm Sunday, leading all the way up to Good Friday, gives the build up for the greatness of Easter. It is when we see how low he went for us That we see the majesty of his resurrection. That we see who he is. And what he has done. That for us he rode in. Not as a conquering hero. But as a humble prince of peace. And gave his life as a ransom. So that when he, re- he rises from the dead. When he fulfills his word to his disciples. That I lay down my life. And I have the authority to take it up again. That we will see his glory. In his suffering. And in his glorious resurrection. I've said before. And I will continue to say it. Because I think it's so beautiful. That the thing that separates Christianity. From all other world religions. Is that Christianity is the only one whose central feature is the humiliation of its God. And we begin to see that here. It is wondrous and exciting and a, an amazing crowd partying and singing hymns. is glorious, yes. But coming in riding on that donkey is the beginning of his humiliation that he took upon himself. And so as we begin our journey towards the cross together, let us meditate daily upon the humility, the humiliation, and the exaltation of the Lord who gave himself for us, who gave himself for you, who gave himself for me, and who now sits in glory at the right hand of the Father, giving us grace and strength and mercy that we may join him there. All glory be to his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.